Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. One has to judge the Biden climate plan released on July 14th in two ways. First, compare it to President Trump's plan. Okay, we've just done that. Now compare it to what scientists say is necessary to face up to the climate crisis. Is Biden's plan more substance or fluff? Is it a political tactic aimed at winning over the left's vote? Or is it a real plan for reaching critical targets that scientists say we must hit to avoid climate catastrophe? Of course, it could be both. Then judge it according to the realities of the balance of power, the massive political clout of the financial sector, which mostly owns the fossil fuel sector and most everything else. Can effective climate policy be implemented without winning over or weakening or winning over by weakening the Black Rocks and other financial titans? So far, finance is learning green rhetoric, but doing next to nothing real. The only climate policy they really support are plans that can be financialized, from which they can make money, like cap and trade. I'm not moralistic about that. If climate crisis can be averted by policies that make Wall Street rich, well, so be it. There's just zero evidence that effective policy can be merged with the short-term profits of finance. That's a difficult paradox given the urgency of the situation. When discussing this, there's always a tension between what's necessary and what seems politically possible. The problem is, without preventing warming reaching and passing two degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, we're looking at the end of human civilization as we know it. That's a quote from Australia's top climate scientist, but many others have said it. The 2019 UN Annual Emissions Gap Report states that if all the countries that made commitments to the Paris Agreement fulfilled those promises completely, we're still headed for two degrees warming by 2050 and three degrees by the end of the century. And that three degrees, many think, is a conservative estimate. I'll say it again. If the Paris objectives are fully met, we hit almost unlivable conditions in 30 years and a catastrophic tipping point in 80 within the lifetime of our kids. Of course, the Paris Agreement targets are not being met, especially after four years of presidential climate denial. The IPCC says the world must avoid hitting 1.5 degrees warming because once 1.5 degrees is hit, it might be impossible to prevent further warming. And even at that level, the consequences of extreme weather will cause terrible damage. Scientists are saying we must have a rapid phase-out of fossil fuels, particularly coal, mass deployment of solar and wind energy, and the eradication of emissions from cars, trucks, and airplanes. Does the Biden plan accomplish that? Does it at least create a space to discuss more effective policy? Or given Biden's history, is it a ploy, as many Sanders supporters fear? Now joining us to discuss the Biden plan and the political struggle in the Democratic Party that gave rise to it is David Roberts. He's an energy writer at Vox, where he covers climate change, clean energy, and politics. Thanks for joining us, David. Glad to be here. So start by talking about the politics of this. Uh, this 
uh, plan, the Biden plan, came out of a, a task force that was created and worked out as a plan between Biden and Bernie Sanders. The AOC co-chaired the task force with John task force with John Kerry. So, talk about the politics of how we got to this task force and this plan, and then we'll kind of dig in more into the substance of the plan itself. Sure. I think, I mean, I guess it depends on how far, <laughs> how far you want to go back, but I would say um, it was right around 2018 uh, when, when Dems were winning big in, in, in the midterm elections. I think that kind of, uh, that kind of prodded a lot of people to think, well, you know, because ever since Trump came in office, everybody's been on defense. The Democrats have been completely on defense and in a panic and just trying to keep up with the outrages. But that sort of like raised the possibility that come 2020, there might actually be a chance to do something. <laughs> and it and it became very clear that on the Democratic side of the aisle, on the broad left of center, let's say, there wasn't really a plan. There wasn't a clear answer to what would we do if we got power, because um, you know, sort of after after the kind of explosion of the cap and trade bill back in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Um, you know, the movement just kind of fractured and everybody went off on their own direction and everybody, you know, like some people started the climate movement, started protesting pipelines. And, you know, some people went after states, you know, on the state level action or cities, city level action. Some people went after the corporate sector, just sort of there was a, a fragmentation and sort of what, what kind of started happening just before and after the midterm elections of 2018 were people on the broad left of center started coming together and talking and trying to figure out, okay, <clears throat> you know, where do, where are we now? Like where, what do we want? What policy do we want? How much do we overlap? How much do we share? Um, you know, goals, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's just been this profusion of meetings and councils and, you know, processes, discussion processes, on and on. On the left, various left of center groups, including, you know, environmental justice groups, union groups, traditional green groups, um, and then in, in in Congress, Democrats on various committees started trying to put together kind of bills and visions. And then, of course, the, the Democratic candidates running for president, uh, notably, all uh, had, had, had climate plans, very <laughs> ambitious climate plans. I, I, I think it's safe to say every Democratic presidential candidate had a plan that would have been more ambitious than anything Hillary Clinton ever proposed in 2016. So there's a lot, there just was like this burst of action and discussion and, and thinking <clears throat> and writing. <clears throat> and what came out of that, sort of what emerged from that is that there is a lot more alignment than people necessarily thought <laughs> there would be or expected. Like it turns out there's quite a bit of of common vision about about what needs to happen. And it's sort of, you, you know, the big sort of elements of that vision are, I think, a couple of things going into it. A couple of I would say a couple of background sort of facts informed this sort of consensus making. One is I think everybody at this point left of center has come to terms with the fact that Republicans aren't going to help. 
they're not going to vote for anything. They're not going to do anything serious. They're not going to agree to anything serious. They definitely won't vote for anything serious. And so there is, you know, therefore there is no point at all in trying to craft a plan meant to appeal to them, right? They're meant to meant to be sort of like proposed as bipartisan centrist, everybody can get on board because, you know, they tried that back with, with Waxman Markey back in, in 2008 and 2009. And the right made it very clear what their response to that would be. So, so it's, it's about, it becomes about, we're not trying to lure the right here. What the main strategic goal is to get it. Cause if you don't have any help from the right, then you need the entire left, right? If you don't have anyone from the right, that's going to cross over, you've got to keep the entire left unified. So the sort of strategic focus shifted from bipartisanship to uniting the, the various factions of the left. Second, I think, was a, a sort of coming to terms with the fact that carbon pricing, putting a price on carbon, either through a carbon tax or through cap and trade, is not, in fact, the silver bullet, is not, in fact, the one true climate policy, is not, in fact, the only thing you need to do to solve this problem. It's not some magic bean. Uh, it's it's a, a perfectly creditable and decent policy that deserves a place alongside many, many other policies, right? It's a piece of the piece of the larger puzzle and not some end all be all, you know, best, best of the best. So those were the sort of things that were informing the development of this uh, new alignment. And the way I describe the alignment and in this big post I wrote about it is I, I boil it down to three elements, standards, investments, and justice. So standards means never mind this sort of oblique roundabout method of pricing carbon. Let's just go right after the sectors where the big emissions are and where we know how to reduce emissions. So that means cars, buildings, and power plants. Like in all those areas, we know how to do it. And the available, you know, the, the alternative technologies are available. What's needed is just concerted effort to drive the carbon out of those sectors. So tight, declining emissions standards in those sectors. Uh, and, and, you know, there are lots of other standards you could bring into this too, but those are kind of the core. And then investments, you know, this is, I think you can credit this in large part to the advocacy for the Green New Deal sort of brought this back to the center of American politics, but but investments means big spending, big public money on big infrastructure projects. You know, electric car charging networks, high speed transmission lines, CO two pipelines, just building, 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 which means jobs, 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 jobs. <laughs> right. So uh, in this sense hearkening back to the New Deal, you know, and that was the sort of s signal feature of the New Deal is big spending of public money to drive deployment of these technologies, to drive the infrastructure we need for the technologies to grow and to create jobs to grow our way out of this horrendous recession. And the third piece is justice, by which I mean a couple of things. One, justice for... Um, 
workers, which means that all these new jobs created and all these subsidies you're handing out and all these standards you're imposing need to be need they need to be good jobs, right? So in a sense, you sort of make the public assistance contingent on these projects having, you know, work plans or, or union standards or high, you know, basically trying to make these into union jobs. Because right now, the oil and gas jobs really are better than the clean energy jobs. That's just a fact. They pay better. They're more unionized. Be better pension. So yeah, the clean the clean energy sector is much less unionized than the fossil fuel sector. It's a sad thing, and I think there's a widespread recognition that that's got to change. Like, if you want to talk to workers about this transition, you can't bullshit them. You have to really create good jobs for them to transition to. So justice for workers, justice for communities who are invested in um, fossil fuel economies. So, for instance, coal communities in Appalachia, et cetera, et cetera. So justice for them, meaning not this sort of hand wavy kind of transition talk we've had so far, but real money, real long term money, training assistance, income assistance, guaranteed pensions, et cetera, et cetera. So really take care of fossil fuel communities. And then third, of course, and biggest is sort of environmental justice, justice for the communities hardest hit by climate change itself, low income communities of color, uh, indigenous communities, et cetera. So making sure that of all the public money you're spending and all the standards you're putting in place that all of that is done with an eye toward the the equity piece of it. So the money gets channeled first to the most vulnerable communities, and and it, the standards you pass, you know, have provisions in them, making sure that you don't negatively affect these vulnerable communities as you implement the standards, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of justice, the justice piece is infused throughout the standards piece and the investments piece. So that's kind of the broad alignment that the left has come around to standards investment and justice sij is how i kind of attempted to boil it down it's obviously a little bit more complicated and takes more time to explain than than you know just carbon tax it's more complicated but it's much more realistic and it's much more um, popular how many of those boxes does the biden plan check yes well that's that's this is my very long-winded wind up to saying um you know, Biden came out with his first climate plan early, early in the campaign, and it was widely panned, right? The Sunrise Movement gave it an F minus, which I think was a little overboard, but it was not, it was not great. And so what's happened is since then, this kind of alignment has formed. Biden won the, won the primary. He won it without young climate people, right? He wanted sort of with his strength with older voters, particularly older African-American voters, but he knows that he can't win the general that way. He knows to win the general, he needs the enthusiasm and support of the youngest, most active uh, uh, parts of the Democratic base. And to boot, there's also good polling evidence that climate is one of the central issues for wavering Trump voters and for independents. So this is not like a appeal to your left only kind of thing. This this is why I call climate change a sweet spot, a political sweet spot for Biden because it actually gets helps him with the democratic base but also helps him 
in outreach to sort of moderates and independents and also helps him peel off Trump voters. It's kind of a win, win, win. So he saw all the he won the primary and immediately started reaching out to left groups, left environmental groups uh, and environmental justice groups said publicly, like, I'm I'm going back to the drawing board. I'm making bigger plans. I'm talking to people. And so what you see now is he talked with the very same people who have been involved in this alignment and this consensus that's been forming. And his plan now uh, reflects that. I mean, it more or less adopted exactly the provisions I've been talking about. So you see the standards, you know, you see carbon free electricity by 20, by 2035. It's very incredibly bold, similarly bold standards for cars and buildings. You see the giant investments, you see over and over and over again, environmental justice emphasized and, and to talk about creating a federal environmental justice sort of, you know, like cabinet position, that kind of thing. So, so this is a very long winded way of saying the left kind of figured out un, in an unprecedented way. I think if you've been following climate politics for a long time, you know, that is that, that any kind of alignment or unity on the left is extremely rare, especially in climate, but like some miraculous forces came together and the left kind of got its shit together on climate. You're including Biden's wing of the party in the word in the word left. Our vocabulary fails us here. I just mean everybody left of whatever the leftmost Republican. Genghis Khan. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's such a broad category, right? <laughs> and that's what that's the, one of the reasons there's so little unity is there's such variety, unlike on the right, which has become very sort of homogenous, you know, r- racially, ideologically, every other way. The left, it, to the extent the right becomes more and more homogenous, the left becomes more and more heterogeneous, has a bigger and bigger tent. And that's why it's sort of miraculous. And I think quite hopeful that like all those, all those various parts of the party, including centrists, centrist Democrats in Congress. Like if you look at the bills that the democratic house put out on climate during this session, and these, and these are from committees, you know, sort of headed by establishment Democrats, they more or less reflect the standards, investments, and justice sort of consensus uh, of the left. So, so Biden heard that and, and picked it up and is pushing it. So it's very weird for me as a climate reporter and as someone who covers the left to, to have good news, but this, (laughs) but it seems like, good things are happening here. Like there's a, there's a consensus itself is good. It's good that like people are agreeing B it's good that Biden, the champion of the party and not someone people would have predicted, (laughs) right. Would be a champion of the left or a champion on climate seems to genuinely appreciate the historical moment he's in. And he seems to genuinely realize that his early plan of sort of like the return to normalcy is like out the window. And he's in a position now where he's got to do something like FDR. He's got to, this has got to be big. He's, he's at a pivotal point in history, knows he needs to go big, even though it's not in his sort of history or probably like temperament. And, and third, the alignment itself is good. Like it's good, ambitious 
policy. So, you know, the left kind of weirdly has its shit together now. Of course, all of that comes down to how much power and latitude Biden will have after the election to get any of this done. Like the, the limits of policy will be set by the size of his of his Senate majority and the uh, just the number of Democrats in Congress, basically, and the and his staffing more than it will be by whatever he puts in his plan. But at least like the plan is good, I guess, is my ver- is the shorter way of saying that very long winded answer. Well, before we get more into the politics of it, because in the end, it's going to be about power and politics, about what actually happens here. Uh, One of the big critiques of Biden's previous climate plan was that it relied a lot on uh, carbon capture, uh, a technology which has yet to actually been proven that it can operate at any scale that would make it effective. And there's still a suggestion in this plan, or more than a suggestion, there's quite a bit of money targeted at research about directed towards carbon capture. Um, how much do you think is that still part of the Biden team's real vision that somehow they don't really have to take on the fossil fuel industry? They don't really have to have, you know, significantly raise emission standards for cars, trucks and airplanes and, you know, really f- pass regulations and move towards phasing out fossil fuels, not just make sustainable green more competitive, relying on market mechanisms. Um, if Because w- without that, th- I mean, there's no way this actually hits what's necessary. In fact, even the stated targets within the Biden plan don't really come close to what scientists say are necessary. Although no doubt, if they were to do them, it's a hell of a lot better than what's preceded it, which is nothing, at least under the Trump administration. But even if they got to, uh, uh, by 2035, 100% carbon-free power, it's an advance, but it's still not going to stop getting us uh, to the two degrees when the rest of the world isn't there. And uh, they still haven't closed down the fossil fuel industry Um, Because while they're talking about carbon-free power, I assume that means electrical power. It doesn't mean there still won't be uh, fossil fuel uh, transportation and such and and also used in other forms of industry. So so, uh, still, it's better than anything else we've seen. But let's focus on this issue of carbon capture because that seemed to be a big deal for Biden. And, And if it still is, it seems very unrealistic, it seems, from what most scientists are saying. Well, I would I would dispute your framing of that actually in a couple of ways. One, I would just say, um, if you look at the models the IPCC is drawing on, or you just pick pick your model, pick a model that shows us that shows the U.S. reaching net zero carbon emissions in 2050, which is Biden's goal. It's sort of the Democrats goal. It's kind of the IPCC's global goal. It's sort of, it's, it's coming close to being kind of the consensus taken for granted kind of target. So if you look at a model of what's going to be required to get us to net zero by 2050, even if you go gangbusters on electricity and cars and buildings, um, a couple of things. One, there are some sectors that are just very difficult to decarbonize. 
Um, maybe, you know, like heavy industry, long haul trucking, those kind of things. Maybe you can get some of that with biofuels. You can get some of that with hydrogen. If you start really sort of investigating and, and standing up the hydrogen, uh, piece of things, but even if, I mean, this is the, this is what the IPCC tells us. Even if you could go to zero emissions, it is already the case that there are more that the, that the atmospheric concentrations of CO2 now are too high to be safe. So even if we stop adding new emissions entirely, we would still for long-term safety need to draw it down rapidly somehow. So I think almost every credible model with very, very, very few exceptions shows that we're going to need some carbon capture and sequestration to reach our long-term targets. And you're right that it's not scaled up yet. Those technologies are in the, are in the, uh, you know, sort of prototype or, or, or demonstration phase right now and ra- and need rapid innovation. But that's true of lots of technologies we need and not just on carbon capture. Like, you know, we look at electrific- electrification and we're like, oh, we have electric cars and we've got like solar, we've got that taken care of. But there are a ton of technologies that are going to be involved in rapid, large-scale electrification that we don't have ready yet. So there's just like, there's tons and tons of innovation needed on tons and tons of different technologies. This is what the big IEA report recently came out and said. And one of those is uh, uh, carbon capture. So I don't think, to, to sort of answer your question more directly, no, I do not think the Biden people are thinking of carbon capture as a way of relieving pressure on them having to reduce other emissions. I do not think anyone who takes climate change seriously is still thinking that way. Like the numbers just don't add up. The The fact is, if you go full bore gangbusters as fast as humanly possible on electrification and on biofuels and on hydrogen and on carbon capture, then maybe you have some slim hope of getting where you want to go. But you got to do everything as fast as you can on all fronts, basically, is what all the models are, are saying now. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not arguing against investing in research on carbon capture. Even who knows whether other forms of geoengineering may even turn out to be necessary and and possible. I, I wouldn't exclude any line of investigation. It's just a question of you can at this point rely on any of that no. until there's some proven technology and the sense of urgency on all the other areas can't be lifted. Yes, you need to go as fast as possible in every area. And that I think is, if there's one thing I'll give really big credit to the Sunrise Movement and kind of the youth climate movement and the climate strikers and Greta and the whole, all of that is, I think that message finally got through is we have waited so long now that there's no wiggle room on any piece of this. Like every, every piece of it has to go fast and has to go well and has to go right for us to to accomplish our goals. Like it's just incredibly, I just don't know that like the public appreciates how difficult and unprecedented it would be for the U.S. to hit net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Like people discuss that target as though it's some like compromise or weakness. And it's true, like in an ideal world, if you want the globe to decarbonize, or to get to net zero by 2050, which is what the IPCC says, 
fairness and equity indicate that the developed countries, the wealthy countries, ought to go a little faster, right, to leave a little more room for developing countries or poorer countries to take more time. So ideally, in an ideal world, we would hit net zero before 2050. And that's and that's fine. I'm happy to concede that. But I just want people to know and remember that if the U.S. did hit net zero by 2050, that would represent the most amazing, concerted, coordinated feat of, of collective action in U.S. history. It is not a small thing. Let's assume that this plan is mostly good, uh, and we'll can dig into it more, maybe even another time. But the reality of of dividing the division, or the reality of the division in the Democratic Party, I would argue with you, is not a split or division on the left. Um, the I think it's a division of the Democratic Party as kind of a broad front alliance, if you will, between sections of workers and, uh, you know, urban populations that are working people, some intellectuals and poor people in alliance with section of what Bernie Sanders calls the oligarchy, the billionaire class uh, and sections of Wall Street and Biden's sector uh, wing of the party. I I would never call left unless you're, I mean, even compared to Trump, I don't think it's the right way to use the terminology. I think it's different sections of the uh, oligarchy, the ruling circles, however you want to call it. And, and the, that Biden, Obama, Clinton-esque section of the party, while no doubt is far more rational and has somewhat more of a longer term outlook about society than the Trumpian faction, which is essentially becoming virtually fascist. Um, but it's very much controlled by uh, sectors of finance, sectors of Wall Street, and that's who they always turn the Treasury Department over to. And, and so when you're talking about what's really possible, let's assume Biden gets elected. And right now it certainly looks like he will be. It's, I guess we don't know about the Senate yet, but even that's looking like they might Democrats might have uh, both houses. The real issue is going to be to what extent is this climate plan uh, a positioning for the election and to what extent will the sections of the Democratic Party, and it's not just Biden at the leadership level, all through the Senate and, and the House for that matter. There's, They just had a bill, what was it, just uh, in the last few days to try to slightly reduce the Pentagon budget and <laughs> they couldn't even win it in the House, never mind the Senate. Uh, this whole sections of the Democratic Party, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to even use the word, uh, to my mind anyway, the word left. Uh, that being said, given the urgency of all this, we're not having any massive transfer of power from the financial sector to the people in the next five or 10 years. And the reality is that somehow there has to be an accommodation with some sections of, of finance if 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 that's possible so uh, so imagine now the, the Biden presidency 
This 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 alliance you're talking about, this convergence, it's an electoral thing. Once he wins, doesn't the war break out and how does it unfold? Well, that's a lot of layered, complicated stuff. <laughs> so I would take it pieces. One is, and and there's we're not going to resolve this on a podcast, a long running debate in the left, but one is I tend to think that people on the left overestimate the commitment of sort of establishment Democrats like Obama and and Hillary Clinton and Biden um, overestimate their ideological commitments, right? And underestimate the sort of um, strategic and and tactical uh, uh, forces driving what they do. And, and a shorter way of saying that is, I think Obama was trying to accommodate a very broad. <laughs> party and 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 Biden is too but they but they ultimately I would say all of them Pelosi Biden pick pick a name all of them would like to go farther left than they're allowed to go now right I mean we can we can argue how far everybody wants to go ultimately but like they're all trapped in this horrible situation now and they all want to go farther than they're allowed to go so it's all ultimately about power and how you hold the coalition together and how you get power and basically as the party has shifted left and as the youth sort of that youth Sanders wing has grown in power and have and uh, as more and more people have sort of like come to terms with the true nature of the Republican Party, <laughs> which was late in coming, but I think has finally arrived. I think that that I, I always thought that Obama and, and Clinton and Biden, et cetera, are more weather vanes than people who are ideologically committed to some sort of financialized version of the world or, or whatever you have. But I think they're more weather vanes. And as the party is moving left, they've been moving left. Like like Hillary Clinton in 2016 was putting forward the most progressive policy agenda that any Democratic presidential candidate had put forward in, in decades. Like, And not because she's particularly brave, but just because the party was heading that way. And it's similarly with Biden. Like Biden, I think, is looking around and and, and sees the world, you know, like, and the world is demanding bold, progressive policy. And so he's putting it forward. Like, I don't think he has any sort of inherent <clears throat> deep in his gut objections to that kind of policy. It's just all about <clears throat> realism and strategy and et cetera. And those discussions are what has changed. The character of the party has changed and the sort of kind of strategic positioning of the whole game has changed a little bit. And it's sort of like if Republicans are going to become a sort of quasi-fascist rump party that is four square opposed to any cooperation on any issue on anything, then that just changes the strategic landscape for Democrats, right? Then all it, uh, it all becomes about, okay, well, we can do whatever we can do on our own. So how do we get things done on our own? And what do we want to do on our own? And that just sort of changes. And I think you're seeing <clears throat> the, that changed thinking reflected in the increasing sort of progressive progressiveness and kind of boldness of, of Biden's policies. I suppose you can think, and I'm sure plenty of people do, that he secretly in his heart is like this you know, uh, evil centrist who's just biding his time and waiting until he's elected. And then he's going to go suck up to, to, to the power brokers or whatever. But that's just all forces in the party are pushing 
in the other direction. And they're going to keep pushing that way once he's elected. That's just the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is the financial sector is, um, has been the, the climate movement, I think decided a couple of years ago to really focus on the financial sector, to go after the financial sector because, and I've discussed this with a few of the sort of activist leaders because precisely because they thought there's more, possibility of movement there than there is in federal politics. So like you can actually get to these people, you can get to big businesses, you can get to the big financial houses. And so it has been years of sort of incremental, you know, them sort of like getting pushed and pushed and pushed. But you're starting to see now, even among like the heads of, of national uh, banks, you know, like big people in finance are recognizing that it, the facts of the matter are that like, giant investments in fossil fuel infrastructure and carbon intensive projects are probably bad investments. Like never mind your morals, you know, never mind the ethics or, or any of the rest of it. It's just like the world is turning. The world is visibly turning against these investments. It's clear there's going to be push for decarbonization. That's not going to go away. And it's clear that if we don't decarbonize, we're going to be in a horrible situation of having to like insure increasingly uninsurable assets. It's going to cost them out the wazoo if climate change is unrestrained. So I think just on, on, on a purely sort of real politic, clear-eyed view, the finance world is coming around to the need to decarbonize. And so you see actually commitments coming from some of these big banks that are more than just notional, that are more, that are more than greenwashing. They are really putting together, there's a coalition of these finance groups putting together real standards on the carbon intensity of investments and the risk of carbon investments and kind of formalizing that in a way it hasn't been, it hasn't, you know, everybody's been sort of winging it on that up to now. They're going to really put that into place and that's going to like affect the Fed. It's going to affect the big finance houses. Like we're really just on the front edge, but we're really starting to see climate being infused into the world of finance because climate is not <laughs> like it was seen of you know a decade ago this kind of frivolous lefty issue that's orthogonal to the real world of business and finance right it's just i think they've finally realized no it's like it's a genuine risk that faces our investments and we could get taken to the cleaners if we don't tighten our our standards on these things so so i think Biden and and that wing of the party are moving on this for political reasons, substantive reasons, you know, every reason. And I think finance, the world of finance is moving on this and the world of big business is moving on this. Like, again, like after years and years of sort of notional commitments and kind of hand waving and greenwashing, what you're seeing from big corporations today are genuinely interesting and ambitious commitments like Microsoft. Microsoft is not just going to go carbon neutral. It's going to try to go carbon negative and wipe out all its legacy emissions from the time it was founded, which is like beyond what anyone was asking of it. Like, so there's enough young people in these, in these companies now in the workforces of these companies that they just for their own you know, purely sort of financial reasons, they've got to listen to it. They've got to move in this direction. They're being pushed like everybody else. So, so I would just say a lot of the kind of 
nefarious centrist and business forces that were pushing back against climate stuff for for a lot of the you know for a lot of our sort of for the the 21st century those forces are shifting along with everybody else and so uh, they're coming into alignment too. Like the the right way to see the picture in U.S. politics is almost everybody now united behind stronger climate action than what we're doing. Right? I mean, so we can argue about how far we want to go, how fast, but almost everybody is aligned behind doing more faster than we're doing. And the only kind of the thumb in the dike <laughs> is the Republican Party, which is which is anomalous even among conservative parties in the world it is it is crazier even than most than than other major conservative parties like i don't know if average us voters really appreciate this cuz they just see this kind of both sides media coverage and this sort of like team sport coverage of politics and they're just like oh it's this side and this side they're two equal sides but but if you step back or step or look from the perspective of a different country you see no it's like the entire civilized world versus this shrinking demographic of rural and <laughs> suburban white men who are panicked about losing power and are getting increasingly anti-democratic and lunatic about holding on to power but they're not one half of the country yeah, let me let me let me argue with you a little bit here. First of all, I I, I don't see Biden as some evil uh, Machiavellian whatever uh, who's totally just waiting to get elected so he can play out his real right wing ideology or whatever corporate ideology. Um, he may or may not be any of that, and I kind of don't care. I don't think it matters that much. Um, I, I even take Sanders and Warren and others who have dealt with him, including Larry Wilkerson, who I interview all the time, uh, who was there during the uh, passing of the um, nuclear deal with Iran and worked with Biden on it. I, I take it that he's probably a you know, within, within the realm of that world, a decent guy. And I don't think he's, I don't even, I don't even use the word evil ever. Even, even with Adolf Hitler, I don't use the word evil. You know, these are historical processes and they give rise to people and it's not, you know, individuals play a role, but it's not just about some, you know, whether they're going to get into heaven or not. So, so the issue is, is I think going to come down to, yes, there's a recognition even amongst the smarter, more conscious sectors of finance, of which there are some, although a lot are not. A lot are pro-Trump. Um, even Larry Fink from BlackRock, who uh, you know came out with a supposed plan on climate, and I wrote an article about this. And when you really dig into BlackRock's uh, climate stuff, it's mostly smoke and mirrors. Uh, like just for example, they say they're going to start divesting from coal, but that's only in their investments that are uh, cho by choice, not their index funds. He, he was asked, Aaron Sorkin asked a, a good question to him, uh, whether, uh, why don't you push for the index funds to get rid of coal? And then you don't have to have them in your index. Uh, you know, you've got such clout on the on Wall Street these days, and there was no good answer to that. Uh, but even even smoke and mirrors on what they have said, because like for example, one of the energy companies, and I don't have the name off the top of my head, but if people go see the article on my site, it's about the headline is something like three f massive finance firms control more wealth than the GDP of China, which is true. BlackRock, State Street, and uh, Vanguard. Um, 
when BlackRock said they're getting out of coal, they said they won't invest in any company. And this is when they're not doing these broad index investments, but where they're picking investments, which is part of their funds. Any any company that has more than 20% or 25% of revenue from coal. Well, it turns out one of the largest coal producers in the United States has many other investments. So coal only represents less than 25% of that of their revenue, even though they're one of the top three coal producers. So BlackRock can, will continue to invest in that company. So there's a lot of rhetoric going on. I, I would even take, like, give them something. I don't think the main leaders of, of BlackRock's and the others, I don't think they're fascists. I don't think they're evil. I think they have a growing consciousness that this climate thing's real and they have kids and they have grandkids. They're just systemically incapable of doing what's necessary because the pressures on them to return money on their investments are such that if they do anything that isn't, doesn't prioritize return on their investments, another company will. They'll just lose their positioning in the market. And wh what, they, what they know is the case is they only happens if government makes them do it. And then it becomes kind of a level playing field where all the finance firms or all the asset management companies have to divest and do this and do that. It needs really strong government intervention. And, and, and here's where you know, the paradox is, the problem for them is, even though they know it needs government to play such a strong role for it to happen, they hate the idea of government having so much power and playing that kind of role. They've resisted these kinds of regulations and government intervention, both in terms of regulating the finance sector and in other sectors, they just don't want, you know, you know, to the extent that the government still has some democratic character to it, and it does have some, it has to get elected and can't, you know, I, I, I don't know, the democratic process in the United States is questionable, but there's something there. They don't like it. So there's, there's this terrible thing. And I think the, the, the ingredient that's missing in, in so far in our conversation, and I think the only thing that will really make a, an effective climate policy actually get implemented, and I, and I take it that this Biden plan is better than most and some very progressive people have signed on to it and so on. But there really has to be a mass movement. There has to be a people's movement of a serious scale that hits the streets because I think without that, the Biden administration caves to the narrow short-sightedness of the financial and fossil fuel sector. Well, I'll say a couple of things. One, uh, uh, nobody, least of all me, would would turn down a giant mass movement if it showed up and started pressuring. I mean, there, you see the germs of it, and it's absolutely having effect, and it absolutely needs to keep going. But the reason I always liked Elizabeth Warren more than Sanders, just for my part, was that she understands something very important, which is that it feels to me like one of the, let's say, flaws in the thinking that might be too harsh. It's sort of one thing I notice among kind of Sanders types and lefty types that I interact with online is they're very sort of focused on 
who who are good and bad people? Like who are the people who have the good and noble intentions and the people with the bad intentions? And they're always trying to divide people up into who's really an ally and who's actually secretly bad and so on and so forth. But it seemed to me like one thing Elizabeth Warren got that I don't see a lot of other people in politics generally really getting is that everything comes down to the rules of the game, sort of the structures and rules and institutions in which we're operating. And you sort of gesture at that when you talk about, you know, the finance people are constrained by a certain, you know, like they could just based on personal morality and nobility go beyond what their industry is doing and put themselves at risk. But what you really want, right, is for them is for is for the decision not to be devolving down to them. The decision should be democratically made. We're going to change the rules, right? So they have to operate that way. And this is what Elizabeth Warren got is that to get the progressivism that progressives want, to get the policy that progressives want, you need structural reform. You need to change the rules and the structures. And it's not sexy. It doesn't like, it's not good. It doesn't get crowds roaring at, at political rallies to talk about the rules, you know, but that's something she understood instinctively because she saw how it worked from the inside when she started studying finance and bankruptcy and et cetera. She saw that the rules I've been are grinding people up and you got to change the structures. And I would even say the same thing about politics. Like I want, like if you could get rid of the filibuster, if you could do something about gerrymandering, if you could do something about rural overrepresentation in the Senate, if you could make DC a state or Puerto Rico a state or just any number of other structural or, or any number of reforms to voting law, make voting registration uh, automatic, you know, in, endless, uh, or, or you could do a, get rid of first past the post voting. You know, you could talk about these reforms forever, but like any one of those reforms would, would be more, a more reliable way of getting positive outcomes than choosing a person who says the right things. Do you know what I mean? Like choosing a person with the right moral character, like you need rules, rule of law. So you're not depending on people. And I feel like Elizabeth Warren got that and and she sort of her campaign documents to me were just the sweet spot, the perfect combination of sort of progressive goals, right? Progressive outcomes, but with very technocratic means like she got down into the muck of the bureaucracy and figured out like who's in charge of this, you know, who, who, what, how do we need to change the structure of these offices? Like, how do we need to change these rules? She had a plan, you know, this was her thing. She had a plan for all these things. And I just like almost all the dysfunctions of our politics, including climate politics come down to me primarily to these structural impediments. And if you could get rid of a few of those, you could like get stuff done, even with like, you know, half-ass weather vane politicians like Joe Biden, if you could change some of these structural things. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree at all. I mean, I I agree completely. It's just the question of how do you get the structural changes? And I I must say, I don't think Bernie Sanders didn't understand that. Uh, It could be some of his supporters didn't, but that's, I think, true for everybody's supporters. Most American politics is all about personality and think somebody's good and somebody's bad. It's like like wrestling. You know, you get (laughs) 
that, uh, you know, you get people, to, characters to play heroes and some characters get to be the villains and then they change. Uh, now, I, 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 that's why, I, like, Larry Fink runs BlackRock. I can fully believe Larry Fink, if he could just have a magic wand, would love the climate crisis to be solved. Why, why, he doesn't want to live in a world that burns up. Uh, you know, uh, for most of these people on Wall Street, they're not insane. On the other hand, they can't do otherwise. So I don't think we're disagreeing on that. The, the, the only thing I would say, just to kind of c- come to a conclusion, is that I don't have any faith that the finance sector or the uh, that Biden Obama wing of the party, uh, any of the, or frankly, even the progressives, no one's going to accomplish very much if the movement that's erupted now in the pandemic moment. And I hope and I think it will broaden as as you know people start losing these unemployment checks and these uh, uh, that that uh, you know people are start you know sections of the working class that never lived in poverty are now not going to be able to eat and pay their rent, and we're I think we're going to start seeing in the streets, you know, demonstrations of the unemployed. And I hope the unions get out of their self-serving little boxes and actually start organizing the unemployed, as was done in the 1930s. You know, if we start seeing a movement that becomes more conscious and makes demands, especially, and I shouldn't say especially, because people are obviously going to start with they need to eat, but also on the issue of climate, and, and see the convergence. And then this is one of the positive things about the Biden plan is it does at least adopt the idea that big infrastructure spending and direct employment, I hope it's direct employment. It's probably not going to be. It's probably going to be Obama-esque where you tons of money goes to the private sector to create the infrastructure. And hopefully that actually filters out to being more jobs and not just various companies skimming a lot of that money. At any rate, it all comes down to people do not have faith that without a movement, there's going to be real change. Well, I think, I mean, this is sort of like, you know, by way of kind of by way of wrapping up, this is sort of like the 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 specter that has always haunted climate change, which is that things are moving in the right direction, right? Like the the movement is growing. They are pushing and pushing and pushing at finance and finance is starting to budge. Like finance is responding to pressure and partially because like the workforces of these companies, like I said, are young people and young people are way more progressive in the U.S. than their parents. And, you know, all the social science tells us that, like, your your basic political orientation when you're young and come to political consciousness really sticks. It tends to stick over your lifetime. So, and, and, and the millennial generation is bigger than the boomer generation. And the Z generation is bigger than the millennial generation. And these are incredibly progressive generations. So, like, the finance companies are going to be run by these people not long from now. And like the big, you know, like all the like politics is going to be run by these people not long from now. So on some time scale, it's going to work itself out. Like the, the people who get it are coming up and taking over slowly, but surely, uh, despite the fact that Congress is still mostly composed of, 100 year olds but like slowly but surely the young people are forcing their way into these institutions and these you know so and they are changing them from within i think that's why you're seeing change happening it's just as you know as your listeners know as everyone knows 
by now. We just don't have much time. So yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. It all comes down to accelerating you know, sort of amplifying the voices of these young people, pushing them as fast as possible up into positions of leadership and appealing to people like Joe Biden. And I really think, like, I know we probably will never agree on this, but I really think that Joe Biden has been has been in discussions with enough, enough young people, has seen their passion, has seen where they are, has seen what they talk about, and what they care about, and really does view himself, as he says on the trail, as kind of a, a transitional figure, kind of a caretaker to get us out of this shithole we're in and, and then hand over the reins to this young generation. So I think he really does care about what young people think and really wants to move in that direction. And there are lots of old people, I think, who who are on 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 their side basically so it's just a matter of like taking these positive um, trends that are really all around us and just like blowing them out speeding them up just like pushing them as fast as humanly possible f- you know for for the rest of our lives and that's going to be that's going to be everybody's job and it's never going to be one single victory one single like ultimate climate plan passes one ultimate bill it's just going to be this back and forth dialectical like push pull push pull push pull but it's moving in the right direction and it's gaining momentum so i I think people should just and, and and people should not act like these institutions or old politicians are immune to these forces like they hear the young people they see the the marches they see the changes in public opinion like just look at public opinion polls now like it's they see the way the wind is blowing and most of them are happy to be like i said weather vanes so you know it's just not i think there's it's it's on net the developments in in sort of in kind of the broad left of center climate world over the last two years are positive like it's a good consensus they come around and they've more or less talked to joe biden into adopting it so like it's working you know there'll be a whole new set of challenges if biden wins even if he gets the senate you know there's the filibuster there's all the rest of these structural impediments but like it's kind of for the first time in my memory at least kind of working like people are rowing in the same direction at least so i'm choosing to contrary to my nature i'm choosing to be optimistic at least for for the time being (laughs) all right well let's let's leave it there thanks very much david (laughs) thanks paul and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast (laughs) 